This is Past Perfect, CU Medieval Radio's program on medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio, FM 98. Hello there. This is Christopher Milke, and you're listening to Past Perfect. This is CEU Medieval Radio show in medieval and early modern history and culture in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Joining us today is Dr. Geza Kalai. Dr. Kalai is a professor at the School of English and American Studies at the Elta University in Budapest. He's a visiting professor at the Institute of European Studies in Vienna, as well as at the University of California at Santa Cruz. Thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, thank you very much for the invitation. So you're a researcher of Shakespeare, as I understand it. That's right. And, uh, well, one of the uh, questions I wanted to start with, a very general question that I've been curious about myself is, why is Shakespeare, in your opinion, such an enduring and popular literary figure? Yes, it's true that Shakespeare has been there ever since he started his career around the, the late 1580s, early 1590s in London. And he's been popular in England later on, especially in the 19th century in Europe, in Hungary mm-hmm. very early. And today, from Stratford to Tokyo, his plays are on stage. And the first reason, Chris, is that he's an extremely good playwright. So his dramas are very good. Not all of them. Right. So there are plays like uh, Henry VI or Pericles or Cymbeline. They are much less on stage than uh, Hamlet or, mm-hmm. or Macbeth or A Midsummer Night's Dream. So this is one of the reasons that his plays are good. But uh, his plays are extremely open-ended, so his language allows a lot of uh, interpretations, and uh, this means that each age can project their own problems into the text of the play. And uh, he is a very flexible author, And we know that his texts, even in his own age, were not stable texts. So people sometimes wrote into the texts of a play which was on for a longer time, and then they put it aside, and then they uh, took it again to the stage, and uh, then they reworked some parts. uh, So it's very hard to know how much is Shakespeare, really Shakespeare, in a text. From our point of view, it's not very important. The important thing is that we are allowed to cut, we are allowed to interpret, uh, we are allowed to work with Shakespeare as they uh, worked with him when he was still alive and he was a very well-known theatrical personality in London, also an actor, Mm -hmm. uh, also a shareholder in the Globe, and also a poet. So he has two narrative poems and Mm -hmm. the famous sonnets. And Mm -hmm. the sonnets are pretty well known, but the narrative poems, not very much. And uh, he was uh, proud, really, of his narrative poems, as far as we can see, because those are very carefully edited. Whereas his plays, well, most of his plays, we have some so-called quarto versions, which appeared in his uh, lifetime, but the bulk of the Shakespearean oeuvre appeared in a folio seven years after his death. So two fellow actors, two friends of his, Hemming and Condell, put all the plays they could access into the folio. And it's a very complicated problem how the quarto texts relate to the folio text. But again, uh, this is for Shakespeare scholars, and Shakespeare scholars would be out of jobs if <laughs> they didn't have this opportunity to compare the various texts. Uh-huh. The important thing is to, to read Shakespeare or to go to the theater and watch Shakespeare and to stage it in one's mind. And if we ask good questions, then we, we find answers uh, to these in Shakespeare's texts. So he's very much alive, and he was very much aware of our um, everyday problems. So uh, 
Of course, you can uh, read Shakespeare politically, you can read Shakespeare from the point of view of his own biography and so on. They tried to reconstruct his biography at one point from his plays. But I think the best reading is if we see our everyday problems, like a father with three daughters in, in King Lear, <laughs> or uh, the uh, total chaos love can produce in a Midsummer Night's Dream, mm -hmm. That love is not only pleasant, but it's extremely painful when one is neglected, like uh, Helena in uh, A Midsummer Night's Dream. So how hatred, how passion, how money, all these work uh, in um, uh, The Merchant of Venice. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So greed, then ambition, vaulting ambition in Macbeth and uh, the price uh, one has to pay for that. Jealousy in Othello, mm -hmm. which can totally reconstruct time schemes. Othello thinks that uh, his whole camp slept with Desdemona at one point, and of course it's physically impossible, so <laughs> in his imagination he expands time. And of course the most favorite and famous uh, figure of Shakespeare, Hamlet, mm -hmm about whom Sir Laurence Olivier said that uh, he was a man who couldn't make up his mind. And <laughs> this is a very nice way of, of uh, uh, summing up uh, what Hamlet is about. But it has always, or, or it has often been seen as an intellectual against power and power relations, uh, how he finds his way in politics, how he finds his way with uh, his mother, uh, with a stepfather, and uh, these are, uh, I mean, we are not Danish princes, but we have mothers, we have fathers, many people have stepfathers. So all these situations are uh, typical human situations in which uh, the text is so written that uh, you can always find something highly original. And uh, Shakespeare can say many things within a very tight place. So he doesn't need, sometimes he is verbose, but then the character is verbose, like Polonius. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so um, so he's, he can really suit the word to the action, as Hamlet suggests, to his players, to his actors. And uh, this is a rare merit, that ideas are acted out and made alive, and truth on the Shakespearean stage happens, it's not a description of what is going on. It is doing the thing itself. So it's a real performance. One thing that I really like about my few readings that I've done of Shakespeare is, and that I think is sort of interesting, is the fact that it was written 400 years ago, but for the comedies that I've read and seen, they're still very funny. And thinking about this, it's, it, there's a couple of things that are going on. I've, I've had a few interviews where we've talked about medieval humor before, and some of it is very, very odd. I mean, we have misericords where there's a bear dressed up as a monk holding a book sideways and trying to read it. Um, mm. You know, medieval humor, you know, very world turned upside down sort of fits their idea of what's funny. And with Shakespeare, that's not so much the case. In my opinion, it's a combination of, you know, we, we have a lot of slapstick. Um, but then again, you also have a lot of very nice turns of phrases and one-liners. And then what I remember, in addition to that, is in, in something like Taming of the Shrew, where Petruchio is uh, having the milliner and the dressmaker come and visit Kate, and he's throwing all the material and saying, oh, no, this isn't good enough for you, where you have stage direction that goes against what the actors are saying. That very often happens, and I think that scene from uh, The Taming of the Shrew is a very good example, especially because uh, this happens in front of Petruchio's court, so to speak, so all the servants, and one realizes that they have one really intimate scene in the whole play, and that, that is the first scene when Petruchio mm -hmm. uh, attacks Kate and says, now you are going to be my wife. And uh, uh, there is no doubt about that. And then they start to pun. And it is Kate who first starts to use puns. And uh, Petruchio can immediately answer. And he is in the game immediately. So it's a great scene. 
and all the other scenes. So it's a, the whole play is extremely interesting, although it's uh, an early play, but it seems that all the other scenes are parodies of that first initial scene, which is also a parody of a play which starts because it's a chest of drawers play. Yes, so it a has a frame. A play there within is a, a play. It's a play within a play, which Shakespeare will use in Hamlet <laughs> That's uh, again. Right. So puns are obviously uh, sources of comedy. Also misunderstandings, so like in, in the Comedy of Errors mm -hmm. or in Twelfth Night when they write a letter persuading Malvolio to wear yellow stockings and uh, he doesn't know why they laugh and uh, he thinks that he's got great success with Olivia. And uh, that's another uh, source of, of comedy. And uh, you alluded to the the tradition of the Lord of Misrule in the the medieval uh, tradition and the at, at medieval universities. Well, uh, it uh, it seems that the Comedy of Errors was written precisely in 1594. Uh, they surely mm -hmm. used it at one of the so-called inns of court in, the, in one of the law schools, precisely for that purpose, namely to to insert some extra entertainment into other great shows like uh, arguing for the so defending as a defend a lawyer of the defense defending the lord of misrule and the prosecutor prosecuting him uh, or or students misbehaving during those festivities which were usually between christmas and, and new year's eve mm -hmm. that was the great uh, uh, period when they could fool around and and they had a great time. So uh, to turn the world upside down is um, uh, f following Bakhtin. Uh, this has an enormous literature uh, and also a very good uh, Shakespeare scholar called Barber who used to teach at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He's got a book called Shakespeare's Festive Comedy from as early as 1959. And he was one of the first to realize that this kind of going off the borders and and uh, the, the the kind of even sensing the danger, how it turns into into something more. In uh, comedy, turns into tragedy when uh, fooling turns into hurting others, mm -hmm. uh, when it becomes humiliating, uh, when it drives somebody mad, as in Malvolio's case, maybe. Well. I can't remember who or where this was said, but someone along the line somewhere said that Romeo and Juliet is very close to being a comedy. Oh, yes. yes. It has a lot of the elements in yes. place, uh, but it's not. Uh, you see, it's uh, all around uh, Mercutio. Mercutio is the spirit of comedy, very high-quality, very intellectual comedy, poetic comedy. Mm -hmm. And when he is killed by Tybalt and he bleeds away, then the play turns into a tragedy. So uh, Shakespeare put a very strong dramaturgical sign into the play I see. to indicate that from now on uh, it will never be like it used to be. So it is not so much the marriage of Romeo and Juliet. Marriage is the old traditional symbol of harmony and they have a clandestine marriage but uh, still it is a marriage but the killing of uh, Mercutio and later on of Tybalt by Romeo mm -hmm. these happen in the open marketplace and uh, so well done in the Zeffirelli film for example it's, or in the uh, Romeo plus Juliet uh, the Bass uh, Lurman uh, versions. It, it's a very public event, yes, yes. markedly uh, in contrast with the private Secret marriage, marriage. Uh, which we usually don't see. So the director can indicate it somehow, but it's uh, not the marriage not. vow is not heard. I see. Alrighty, we will have to take a short break, but we'll be back momentarily. Please enjoy the music. Welcome back. This is Chris Milkey, and joining us today is Dr. Geza Kale. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for the invitation, and it's great to be here. Oh, very glad to hear that. And um, for this particular section, we talked in the previous one about how uh, 
you know, Shakespeare's popularity uh, today. And one of the things that I wanted to ask was uh, about contemporary opinions of Shakespeare. I'd imagine he was very well received in his day. Yes, he was a popular playwright, even in his own times. And there were playwrights who uh, seemed to have learned a lot from him when he was already a, an established figure, also a shareholder in the Globe. And it seems that he was responsible for reviewing plays mm -hmm. which uh, others brought uh, to the theater troupe uh, called the first the Lord Chamberlain's Men and later on the King's Men after 1603. Mm -hmm. And he was responsible for uh, perhaps correcting things or he suggested changes. Uh, so he was more than just a, a playwright working for the company. Uh, he was a very important person, so a lot of people had to know him. And uh, he was lucky to join a, a troupe where there was an excellent tragic actor called Richard Burbage. And Dick Burbage, as he was called then, he played Hamlet, mm -hmm. Othello, so all the great tragic roles. And uh, he was the son of uh, James Burbage, who was the entrepreneur or the, well, today we would say the managing director of, of the company. He was himself, as far as we know, uh, he was not an actor or, or anybody uh, directly responsible for the stage, but he was a very good carpenter. So he built the first permanent theatre in London called The Theatre <laughs> in 1576. And uh, he uh, uh, later on managed the company. Unfortunately, his, his diaries, he had to keep a diary like other companies. We have the diary of a man called Henslow in another company. So surely Burbage kept a diary. And, but we, we don't have it. It I got see. lost or burnt. Uh, that would tell us a great deal more, but we know that uh, when the contemporaries mentioned Shakespeare, he was usually mentioned as honest will. And his friends, Hemming and Condell, uh, who uh, put the first folio together, they say that, well, what you have to do with these plays is read them, read them, read, 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 buy the book and read. And uh, they say, well, we primarily did this because we didn't want uh, that uh, such a good friend's work should be forgotten. Mm -hmm. uh, so they don't talk so much about the merit of the plays, but they say, well, the merit of the man, uh, the merit of, of William Shakespeare. But uh, we do not know, uh, of course, uh, what kind of a man he was. Right. So we would like to hear him. We would, li <laughs> we would like to hear the tone of his voice. And uh, it would be nice to have a beer uh, <laughs> with, with Shakespeare. In a, in a short story of mine, I reconstructed such a meeting after um, the um, Merchant of Venice. And uh, uh, then I... Uh, imagined that I would, uh, that was in, in 1595 or 96, so it is before Hamlet. And then I tell him, you see, you will be uh, perhaps the most famous person in the world, uh, not only in uh, the theater or in literature, but as a, as a public figure mm -hmm. and uh, how he would respond. And I think he would say, well, this is, this is not good because that makes somebody too ambitious. Like uh, Macbeth uh, later on says, uh, well, vaulting ambition is like um, trying to get on a horse and falling off on the other side because <laughs> it's, a too, it's too big a swing right, uh, right. To, to jump on a horse. So, so he, was, uh, he was very cautious mm -hmm. when it came to politics and being on two good terms uh, with the aristocracy, uh, because there was the example of Marlowe, uh, who was, uh, I think, just as talented as Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. He was an extremely great poet. Perhaps he didn't have such dramaturgical skills, but his imagination was fantastic, and he was better educated than Shakespeare because he had attended uh, Cambridge. Right, right. And uh, he 
got uh, into trouble. Uh, we don't know, perhaps he was a spy, or but he came too close to uh, the power circles of the Privy Council, mm -hmm. it seems. And Shakespeare was cautious not to do that. He was on good terms with Risley, uh, the uh, Earl of um, Southampton. Oh, he right, dedicated yeah. his uh, narrative poems to him. We don't know if he's the fair youth uh, uh, to whom uh, uh, the uh, the first uh, sonnets are, are dedicated, so uh, are are written. But anyway, he was on good terms with uh, the Earl of Southampton, but mm -hmm. that was all. Right, so right. Uh, he he was not a part of that uh, circle, and that helped him to survive. And he was a good businessman. So he bought a lot of land around Stratford. He bought the second best house in Stratford called New Place, which was a stone house, and only the mayor had a, a stone house. Mm -hmm. Besides uh, uh, that house, his elder daughter, Susanna Shakespeare, married a medical doctor, John Hall, who was also very wealthy. So when Shakespeare retired to between 1608 and 10, then he was a well-to-do businessman, and uh, he had arable land, mm -hmm. everything he needed. So, and it's hard to uh, imagine such a, a poet not writing. I mean, he wrote. He wrote uh, most probably the the Winter's Tale and the Tempest in in Stratford, and then with John Fletcher. All is true, or, or Henry VIII, a play which got lost, Cardinio, mm -hmm. the two noble kinsmen. But uh, he stopped being a busybody uh, as one of his contemporaries who attacked him. That's the only attack we know of. He, oh, really? he called him, yes, it was Robert Greene, but at the very beginning of, of uh, his career. He said that uh, uh, Shakespeare is a Johannes factotum, a Johnny to do everything, I see. who is beautified with our feathers. He is an upstart crow, beautified with our feathers, and he thinks he's the only shake scene in the country. <laughs> so that uh, he can only uh, shake a scene. And uh, that was uh, Robert Greene, but he was dying. He was writing this on his deathbed, and we don't know why uh, he was so bitter about Shakespeare. But Ben Jonson was younger than Shakespeare, and uh, Ben Jonson thought that he was a more educated person. He was self-educated, but mm -hmm. he said about Shakespeare afterwards that uh, Shakespeare had small Latin and less Greek that is famous, but we don't know because uh, mm -hmm. whether it's true, right. because Ben Jonson was a rival, but he said famously that he was not just for this age, but for all times, uh, and uh, he uh, wrote a beautiful poem uh, into the folio, as that was then the custom, that, that uh, colleagues, uh, fellow playwrights, they all wrote dedicatory pieces into the, the book uh, they, uh, they published. And the folio was a serious book enough uh, then to uh, require such a gesture. So uh, Ben Jonson was uh, a rival, but at the same time, he also very much uh, appreciated Shakespeare. But Shakespeare was not the playwright with uh, the greatest output. That was Thomas Haywood, who mm -hmm. claimed to have written hundreds of plays. Uh, then uh, he was not, perhaps not the most well-educated, because Marlowe and Johnson were better educated. Right. Uh, he was not the person with um, the greatest reputation, because Ben Johnson had a circle we, we know of. So he didn't want to be in the first row mm -hmm. in his own time. And uh, I think it he would be uh, very much surprised that he's so much talked about. Well, and um, the sister-in-law of Louis the Fourteenth of France um, w was writing to a, a friend of hers and referring to a new marriage that took place in the family as, you know, akin to the marriage of the shrewish Kate. Mm -hmm. So this was in the end of the 1600s. And one of my questions um, 
related to this incident is, was he translated into other languages um, shortly after the publication of these folios, or was it mostly an English version? Uh, that's a very good question, because in Germany, Shakespeare was very popular, and they discovered a, a Hamlet, uh, which was uh, surely performed uh, still in the uh, 17th uh, century, and uh, uh, they thought that it was the original Hamlet, uh, because uh, we know of a so-called Ur-Hamlet, an old Hamlet. Mm -hmm. But it turned out that it was um, a kind of German version of Hamlet. Mm -hmm. Just it seems that the English troops brought Shakespeare to Germany, even in the, in the 17th century, because okay. then there was not much original theater yet in Germany. And perhaps they performed the plays in English, or they gave quick translations, or it's very hard to imagine how, but the real turn came in the um, late 18th century and early 19th century, and especially with Goethe. Okay. And then uh, they started to translate uh, Shakespeare systematically, also in Hungary, mm. in, in Denmark, in, in France. Uh, so um, uh, he became a, an absolutely uh, public figure. It, in France, even in the uh, already uh, during the Enlightenment in the 18th century. And it, it didn't affect the question whether they liked Shakespeare, but uh, he was on the stage. Yes. And uh, they uh, translated Shakespeare also in the sense that they rewrote him. Mm -hmm. There is a version from the very late uh, 17th century of King Lear by Nahum Tate, who um, wrote a happy uh, ending to, to King Lear. It's very, very funny. There is no French king, so no France in the play, and uh, Cordelia marries Edgar, uh, and uh, uh, there is a prison scene when uh, soldiers come to kill Cordelia, and the 80-year-old uh, Lear, like uh, an action hero, kills all these soldiers. <laughs> you want to hurt my daughter, and he kills all of them. And uh, Edgar arrives, and they restore uh, King Lear to the throne. And the whole conflict is that Cordelia and Edgar were uh, uh, worried that Edgar is not noble enough or, or not an aristocrat enough to marry one of the princesses of Lear. So that's the whole conflict. And there is no fool, unfortunately. So, But Shakespeare was on the stage. Mm -hmm. And uh, what is uh, very interesting uh, is that for more than 100 years, all through the 18th century, until 1835, when uh, Dickens, uh, with a uh, great Shakespearean uh, actor, uh, Macready, mm -hmm. uh, they restored King Lear, the original. But until then, the play was on the English stage in the Nahum Tate version. It's a comedy, oh my goodness. So it, it was a comedy, yes. <laughs> yes, 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 it was a comedy. And they, um, in, the, in the late uh, 17th century, they um, rewrote uh, Macbeth, William uh, Davenant, who claimed that uh, he was uh, Shakespeare's illegitimate son. He rewrote uh, Macbeth into something like a musical, and he inserted uh, uh, the witches, yes. uh, the weird sisters, dance and sing and uh, so on. Well, there is something uh, like that, in, right, in the or, right. uh, so to speak, the original. But So uh, uh, the uh, witches have a great time, and uh, there is a ghost for Duncan, because there is a ghost of Banquo. Right. So uh, Davenant thought, well, where is the ghost of Duncan? You have to have a ghost of Duncan. Fair enough. <laughs> so um, uh, Shakespeare was made fit, and uh, the taste, the theatrical taste, changed not long after, mm -hmm. uh, not his death, but uh, many things changed in the middle of the 17th century. So that's, we know, Descartes' century, Pascal's century. So the great changes in philosophy, in, in thinking, in attitude. And uh, that had a, a considerable effect on the theaters. But 
Shakespeare was on stage even then. We're going to have to take a very short break for now, but we'll be back momentarily. Welcome back. This is Chris Milke with Past Perfect, and we're joined today by Dr. Geza Kalai. Now, um, in this particular um, portion of the interview, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the research that uh, you yourself have done. Um, and uh, from, from what I can see, you work a lot with more of the dramas. That's right. Um, for instance, you have an article called, um, well, not called, but it deals with space uh, in That's Macbeth. Right. And for me, I'm, I'm an archaeologist, so I have to ask uh, how space is used uh, in Macbeth. Uh, yes, the uh, Weird Sisters ask uh, at the beginning of the play, when shall we three meet again uh-huh. and uh, where? Shall we uh, three meet again? And then one of them asks, uh, where the place? And uh, in the heath, they say, there we find Macbeth. So they dominate both time and space. Mm. That's the indication uh, all through the play. And uh, that was a talk I I gave in Transylvania at a conference. And um, they were interested in uh, the discourses of of space. Mm Just today, the uh, the article came out oh, by, uh, in a, a collection of volumes with the with the other uh, very interesting lectures. Um, but uh, I think that uh, that my main interest is in uh, what we today call philosophy and literature. So I uh, have always tried to read a Shakespearean text as uh, pertaining to uh, a a serious philosophical question of of the human being, not so much uh, in terms of Shakespeare's own age, although that is also a very interesting question, how he was influenced by various trends uh, of of Renaissance uh, or or early modern uh, thinking. Uh, But uh, I learned this uh, from, from my American master, Stanley Cavell, uh, who was uh, a professor of, of aesthetics at Harvard. Uh, now he's emeritus. And uh, uh, he, uh, I spent uh, six months at, at Harvard in, in 1995 uh, attending his lectures and, and talking a lot with him. And I have read uh, most of what he has written. And uh, he has this, this marvelous way of uh, starting uh, with uh, the problem of skepticism, uh, as it is uh, exposed by, uh, especially by Wittgenstein, because uh, his, his favorite philosopher is Wittgenstein, mm-hmm. uh, like mine has <laughs> become. And uh, then he extends that into, uh, into the study of Othello. And he says, well, the extreme form of jealousy in, in Othello is like the extreme form of skepticism we, we have towards the other, that we can never become the other, that we are forever separated. And in the same way, I, in my, my dissertation, which I defended in Leuven, and, and uh, Professor Cavell was my external examiner, I asked uh, why uh, uh, Macbeth puts uh, his question, is this a dagger which I see before me? Uh, in the way philosophers like to formulate their questions. Uh, because, uh, say, Bertrand Russell, at the beginning of uh, the, the problems of philosophy, he asked now, is this a desk I am, I'm working at, and how do I know? Uh-huh. How do I know for certain? And what is the difference between a philosopher asking that in his study and Macbeth asking this before going to murder Duncan? And there is the weapon. Uh, in the air. Now, is that real or imaginary? Is it more real, as Macbeth himself claims? It's more real than the one I'm, I'm ready to draw. It's on my side. So uh, these are really marvelous moments of Shakespearean drama, or, or when uh, uh, Lear, uh, who can see that uh, his daughters, uh, the, the two elder daughters, are driving uh, uh, him out of the castle. And uh, they say, well, why do you have these hundred attendants, uh, my lord? Do you need 20 or 10 or 5 or none, perhaps? 
And then Lear starts to say, well, reason, not the need. How much does a human being need in order to still feel human? Uh, so, because uh, uh, Lear says, even the basest beggar has some excess, uh, has something more. Mm. It, it reminded me very much of, uh, of Fateless uh, the, the f in the film, uh, Fateless, Bondi Citrom tells Kovesh Judy, you should always have a little piece of bread in your pocket. Uh, don't eat all the bread, because that gives you uh, human dignity. And this is something Lear uh, talks so eloquently about, mm -hmm. that uh, human beings are not beings who would only need food, uh, rest, uh, water, uh, but uh, but something more to to call ourselves uh, human, and he is precisely after that. The whole play is after that, and uh, uh, similarly in in Hamlet. Well, Hamlet is an, an easy topic in the sense that he is the only intellectual uh, hero Shakespeare created besides Prospero, mm -hmm. but Prospero is not the hero of a tragedy, but Hamlet is the hero of a tragedy, and uh, Hamlet uh, asks the famous question about being, about human existence, and he discovers very eloquently that uh, this is a question we cannot legitimately ask from this side. Mm -hmm. Because it's not so that we can not be a little bit, and then we are, and then we, from a third position, we comfortably compare the two right, and decide right. whether <laughs> it's better to be or not to be. The situation is that we can only ask such questions from the shore of being, whereas our being is still, we know, is permeated with signs of non-being, all the negative things like the death of those uh, we love, uh, the, uh, the tragedies of, of love we, we go through, uh, the, uh, perhaps uh, the, the tragedies of, of ambition. Um, so all these we, uh, we would uh, perhaps like to avoid, but with which the best, or towards which the best attitude is to live them to the full, even our failures, just as much as our, our so-called victories. Well, you've talked a lot about reason and philosophy, which I've never really looked at it um, from that perspective before. So I also have to ask about the other side of the coin, about madness, mm. about you know insanity, this uh, state where reason is lacking. How does Shakespeare tackle that issue, in, in your opinion? Oh, that's a, that's a wonderful topic, Chris. Uh, <laughs> Uh, one thing is that, that Lear, for example, Lear goes really mad. And he has to go mad because it's such a mad world that the brain must reconstructure itself in order to come to terms uh, with, a, with a mad world. Uh, I think Hamlet feigns madness. And madness was a favorite uh, topic of... Uh, of we we know that since Foucault, mm -hmm. uh, uh, great book, uh, that it was it was a fantastically popular topic. Uh, also on the English stage, it was mm -hmm. a very popular topic, uh, and they uh, realized that uh, in creation, in 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 creation, which is really creative, uh, which means that one can create another reality, uh, madness is a great ally. Uh, because it uh, it does what a really imaginative playwright can do and achieve. It can reconstruct the world. It can create a new reality, because what in madness is real to a person is as real as this microphone is, is real. Uh, so um, uh, it, uh, madness can be read as uh, great imagination as uh, 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 providing fantastic insights. Montaigne says in, in his essays that you, you cannot decide who is right. Maybe the madman knows more than we do. 
So don't dismiss what, mm -hmm. what mad people say. And uh, they, there were all sorts of prophets, um, all sorts of, of uh, uh, people who were in the madhouse called the Bedlams mm -hmm. uh, in, in Shakespeare's age. And uh, Shakespeare puts Tomo Bedlam uh, in uh, Edgar into King Lear. Edgar claims to be a man possessed by all sorts of evil demons and he is uh, doing uh, an exorcist exercise to get rid of these. Uh, so, um, uh, and what I, I find very remarkable is that when uh, uh, Descartes starts his meditations uh, in 1642, that is after the discourse on the method already. But his, the second thing he mentions after, as, a, as a possible way of increased skepticism uh, in himself uh, is uh, to think of mad people. And there, he says, mad people who think uh, that their bodies are made of glass and uh, they, can, they can be shattered into pieces, uh, ingeniously realizing that the real rival to philosophy is madness, not something else. Mm -hmm. uh, that that uh, philosophy uh, being so much absorbed sometimes into itself and uh, becoming so private uh, some uh, I indeed can verge on uh, being totally locked up into a world where uh, certain things are real only for the person. In, in philosophy, this is called, the extreme form of this is called solipsism. Mm. I, am, I am alone in the world. And it's uh, pretty easy to arrive at the conclusion that uh, I am the, the only ipse, I am the only person, the only I uh, in the world. Along the lines of this, there is the only me in this world, do you think that the monologues sort of uh, in, in a lot of these wonderful. plays ref reflect this sort of uh, thinking? This is, a, this is a wonderful question, Chris. You, you are uh, an aspiring candidate, I can see in Shakespeare's studies. Yes, uh, and this is a wonderful question because uh, the monologues are the most difficult parts of the play for modern stage directors and modern audiences because today we are not used to monologues. Of course, we forgive Shakespeare. Uh, but uh, uh, yes, uh, that, is a, that is a private talk when the person uh, speaks his mind especially when it's a real uh, soliloquy, so when, when the person is alone. Of course, very much aware of the audience, so that's Hamlet telling us to be or not to right, be, right. so asks us. Uh, but uh, yes, this, this kind of, of, of privacy, but there is um, uh, the privacy of the world, and the privacy of the world is uh, the problem of nothingness, which again, uh, Shakespeare several times uh, brings up in Hamlet that the king is a, is a thing of nothing. Or uh, in, in Lear, uh, when uh, uh, Cordelia says at the very beginning to, to Lear's question, so what, what are you going to say uh, to get a, ni a nicer place, a nicer piece of land than your sisters? And Cordelia says, nothing, my lord. And then uh, the play really starts with this nothing uh, and uh, what it means uh, to to uh, have nothing as we we said so uh, is that only a, a, a personal nothing or, or is that the nothingness of the world uh, and uh, how can we how can we make the world talk to us how can we make the other uh, talk to us and is it possible that when somebody says nothing, that is more meaningful and more significant than uh, a lot of words we tend to emit and utter under all sorts of circumstances? The archaeologist in me would always say, it depends on the context. <laughs> it depends on the context. 
but uh, the the Shakespeare was very careful to provide several uh, contexts and uh, sometimes uh, even disorienting us uh, as to what the context really is. So he didn't uh, make it uh, easy. So when we say it depends on the context, uh, then we should know that the, to recuperate the context sometimes depends on another context. Fair enough. Fair enough. We'll take a very short break, but we'll be back with the end of the show momentarily. Welcome back. This is Chris Milke, and we've been um, very fortunate to have Dr. Geza Kaler joining us today to talk a bit about Shakespeare. Thank you. Before we end the show, um, one of the things that I wanted to um, ask uh, is about um, uh, contemporary stagings of Shakespeare. So um, what's sort of uh, ongoing and sort of uh, interesting, in your opinion, about modern interpretations of these plays? I think that Shakespeare is really alive on the stage, so it is very nice to talk about him mm -hmm. and, and his his plays, and it's it's very nice to uh, write essays and uh, and put footnotes to his words. But uh, Shakespeare is really Shakespeare when actors uh, act uh, Shakespeare out and actresses and. I could witness to um, a very interesting uh, modern uh, production of A Taming of the Shrew in Vixinhas uh, uh, here in, in Budapest, uh, directed by Peter Gotar. And I could uh, sit through the uh, uh, rehearsals. And that was uh, a very great experience uh, for me because uh, I wanted precisely to, to see how the text becomes uh, a, a performance, how it is acted out mm -hmm. actually on stage, and all the struggle an actor or actress goes through to do that, and how great uh, actors and actresses involved in that production, uh, they build up a, a character and how they struggle with, with that. Uh, and uh, it was a uh, one of the the most important uh, Shakespeare experiences I have uh, I have ever had, and still I I go back to to see the play still on, uh, not very often now. Mm -hmm. uh, it was two years ago that they started uh, producing it. It's a very remarkable thing when you can when you can see a play coming into being. And there are all sorts of schools of trying to add something. So they uh, now, if you if you put uh, uh, Shakespeare on stage, then uh, everybody knows the stories and so on. Then they will ask, well, what does it add to the interpretation of the play? What mm -hmm. what has not been there yet? And uh, Shakespeare is so, as we said at the beginning. So we are coming full circle that uh, that the text is so open-ended uh, that you can you can uh, give lots of interpretations i was also involved once my students involved me in a production of hamlet where they persuaded me i'm the the director balash sigeti a very talented student at uh, elta uh, university uh, to to play Claudius and he was Hamlet I was Claudius and it's a very big difference to talk about Claudius uh, than to to act him out so when in the prayer scene mm -hmm. uh, when uh, uh, he uh, he cannot pray and he would very much like to mm -hmm. and uh, he is a shrewd businessman who wants to bargain even with God and says well Okay, wha what do you what do you want? And uh, when he realizes that he should give his crown, uh, his wife, and his uh, position, then he says, "Okay, then I I lost in that respect. I lost, so I see. I won't get to heaven." And he's a much better theologian than Hamlet because Hamlet, in the to be or not to be monologue, doesn't talk about the other world at all. He says about that it's the undiscovered country from uh -huh. whose born no traveler returns. There is no God mentioned, no everlasting judge. Uh, whereas uh, in in, in Claudius' speech, uh, it's 
totally clear that he knows that he's going to get to hell that uh, this is uh, this is the end in that respect mm -hmm. and very characteristically he never returns to this topic in the play again and i started the play because it started not with the ghost uh, on the um, battlement uh, castle but it started with the court scene when claudius starts to uh, talk about old hamlet his brother mm -hmm. and of course he doesn't say that he killed him <laughs> but uh, he talks about old hamlet's death and there is hamlet who has uh, not met uh, the ghost yet and there is gertrude who must be very beautiful and uh, claudius very happy after all and uh, this uh, this was my task so then i was extremely nervous when i, uh, I was uh, claudius uh, but uh, if not on stage, because there are many people who, who don't like to act, uh, although I think that amateur acting is one of the best ways of uh, playing a game together um, and, and realizing how much we depend on one another even in, in real life, mm -hmm. but even in, in one's imagination, one can uh, put Shakespeare on stage and uh, then it becomes very rewarding. Even reading him either in, in, in the original, of course that's the best, but we have uh, several very good Hungarian translations mm -hmm. and their, their number is growing. So uh, read, as, as Heming and Condell uh, said, uh, read, read, read Shakespeare, read Shakespeare and, and watch Shakespeare. Very good, and we thank you very much for joining us today. Well, it's thank you very uh, much. It's been a very pleasant uh, morning. So <laughs> the, sh the show uh, could go on, of course, but uh, we do have to end it now, unfortunately. Um, thanks again, Dr. Kalai. It's been a real great p pleasure having you here. Thank you. It was a privilege to, to uh, join you, and I wish uh, a lot of good uh, to the, the show and the listeners. And for our listeners, uh, be sure to tune in uh, um, to us on the web at www.medievalradio.org. Uh, be sure to send us an email if you have any questions or comments to medievalradio at ceu.hu. And be sure to like us on Facebook as well. We thank you very much for listening. Take care and goodbye.